0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Good afternoon, America. This is Billy Jones, the author of Everyday Folks Radio. And thank you for listening to today's show here on Everyday Folks Video. The title of the show is BJ Speaks, an interview with. Interview extraordinary individuals who are doing incredible things within their respective communities or professions. If at any time you'd like to reach me during the live broadcast, you may do so at 347-539-5372. Again, that is 347-539-5372. And if you're a little shy and you prefer to inbox me with your questions, comments, or requests, you may do so at any time at everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. Again, that is everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. Just a few shout outs to a few individuals who make my work so enjoyable and who are on Team Billy. First and foremost, to my dear team here at Everyday Folks, my colleague, Anike S., who is the host of Journey into Passion, which takes place on Saturdays at 12.30 p.m. right here, Eastern Standard Time on Everyday Folks Radio. She has taped so many episodes this year, and each episode gets more compelling on the types of guests that she she speaks to, to her own notions about the topics that are relevant to our world. So congratulations to my dear friend, Anike S, for her incredible work. And also, I'd be remiss if I did not recognize my dear friends and colleagues of the Keeping Up With K-pop team. You haven't seen these girls, they are amazing. And they keep us all apprised of the ins and outs and trends of Korean pop music. And if you haven't been watching the media, K-pop is here, folks. It has invaded America. And there have been some impressive acts that are coming through that are going to put many of our own American artists a run for their money. So do tune in to their show, which airs on Friday, the first Friday of each month, at 1 p.m., right here on Everyday Folks Radio. And lastly, to my dear friends who are at the South Florida Writers Association, I apologize for missing yesterday's holiday luncheon. But as you can imagine, this time of year is a busy time And I definitely send a shout to you and congratulate you in welcoming me as a member this past year. And continue all great writers, those who are novice and pro, continue doing the great work that you do and expressing yourselves and putting your message out in the world. I will see you in January. And for those of you who who reside in Miami and would like to join SFWA, the the meetings are held the first Saturday of each month at the Pinecrest Regional Library in Miami, Florida. The meetings are 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Enough of all these great folks. It's time for us to introduce our phenomenal guests. So I am privileged to speak to this incredible man who I've come to know as a dear colleague in higher education. But what's more is that he embodies so much, and he's a brave, smart man took the time to create an incredible work titled, Dear Mama, Lessons on Race, Grace, and the Wisdoms to Overcome. Here's the bio that I posted on the blog, and I hope that you've had a chance to read it. If not, you'll hear it now. Sean was born in 1966 to a single mother, <clears throat> Susan Schwanner, in Toledo, Ohio. Alone and poor, Sean's mother was facing crossroads with the incredible Bertha Lee Green, a.k.a. Mama, into Susan's life, and offer to raise her unborn child. Dear Mama provides lessons on race, grace, and the wisdom to overcome as learned from his life with Mama, an African-American woman. If at any time, folks, you'd like to speak to me or Sean during this live podcast, I'll give you the line again. It's 347-539-5372, or you can inbox me at everydayfolkslisten at gmail.com. Sean, thank you so much for coming to the show. How are you today? Oh, Billy, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. You are very welcome. And I first want to start by congratulating you. You continue to reach milestones in your book sales. Folks, you got to buy this book. I am Team Sean. He's great. He's just not only a great <laughs> author. Yes, I am biased, <laughs> but also he has incredible work. So do support it. And I've read it as well. And I think there are so many beautiful life lessons to get to get to get gain from it. So congratulations to you, Sean. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, Sean, my my first it question to you is the most obvious, which is, what inspired you to write this work?
0: Well, you know, it's an obvious question, but it is um, it's really a tricky one. Um, let me let me go ahead and put it in context for you. Uh, sure. Back in 1988, I, I attended uh, Denison University, and you may or may not recall, but racial tensions across America were not much different than they are right now, and right. we had actually gone through a situation where one of my best friends had been accosted um, because of race, and we ended up going into protests, and we sat out for a week, and we were delivering speeches, and Newsweek was there in time, and all the national broadcasting um, channels. And in my English class, I was taking a creative writing class um, at the time, and I was talking about my experience living with Mama Green and Daddy Green mm-hmm. and Leo Green, who I call Guy. And um, we had dinner during the protest with Maya Angelo, who was uh, mm-hmm. uh, visiting Denison at that time. And my English teacher, while we were at dinner, somehow I got invited to dinner with Lisa Coleman, who is the chief diversity officer currently at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And we got into a conversation, and Dr. Stoneburner told Maya Angelou that he thought that I had an interesting story. So Maya Angelou sat back and said, "Um, I'd love to hear your story. And when I told her the story, um, she sat back, she leaned back, and she said, Sean, I I think you should write a book about Mrs. Green. And I said, oh. Okay, uh, maybe someday I will. And you know, roughly thirty years later, <laughs> I was sitting wow. at a, a a crossroads of my own. Um, um, turbulations in my personal life, fa- financial mm-hmm. life, kind of hit pretty hard, and I was really down, feeling very down in general. And it just dawned on me that out of all the people, because I'm kind of new to Miami, so I don't have those like intimate intimate relationships I had back mm-hmm. in Ohio. And I was sitting down, and I was reflecting on Mama Green, and I said, you know, if she were here, what would she say to me? And I sat down one day, and I said, you know what? I started thinking about her quotations and the sayings she used to say to me, and Mm -hmm. I listed all the quotations, and I said, you know what? It's time to write this book, because those quotations, um, those, those anecdotes, those stories that she gave me, the confidence that she built for me, I said, she's going to lift me up one more time, so that I can walk, and so that I can be strong, and I sat down, and I started writing. So I reflected on Maya Angelou, but I also thought about the strength that I gained, garnered from my relationship with, Mel- with Mama Green, mm-hmm. and I sat down, and I just started to write, and that, that's really how it all came about.
1: Wow. It's, first of all, I have to share that you and I have a similar connection with Maya Angelou. Back in 2005, I think it was, or 2006. I was a junior or a senior in college, and I, I was a student ambassador of my, at my alma mater FIU. And my Angelou came in to speak as well to the students. And I got the pleasure to ride in the limo to go pick her up from the airport. And that moment, it's funny that you would say that she shared that with you because she did something similarly to me, which was I told her I was an English major, and I was an a, a English and journalism major, dual major. I was very passionate about writing a book someday, and I told her, I didn't think my life was being any interesting, and I shared with her as well my story at that moment in time, and she, she, she gave that moment, and it was that pause that said, you know what? You need to write a book about it. <laughs> and this is very funny, seriously, she passed away, well, it's been almost two years now, because she passed away in 2014, was 14 or 15? And it's
0: important. It's, it it's
1: amazing that you were touched. And here you are today, Sean. This process to write is it's it's an incredible process. It's a recursive process, but a challenge nonetheless. So could you walk me yeah. through the process that you used to write? So how did you get started? Did you just start sitting at your, your laptop and, and, and typing away, or did you do it in spurt? Did you schedule writing? What's Sean's process like to arrive at a manuscript?
0: <laughs> well, uh this particular manuscript is much different than how I write when I do an academic piece right. in my academic pieces, I do a lot of chunking and then I outline uh at 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 great length to <laughs> write academically um in this case, what I did was is i i just started i took out a tape recorder on my phone and I just started remembering all of her quotations and i mm-hmm. would I would say the quotations into the phone. And then when I'd get home, I would type them up. And it ended up I came up with right, almost 300 direct quotes that I remembered. And what I did was is I sat down and I would pull out a quote and I would start to tell a story based upon that particular quotation. And next thing you know, I'd written, you know, 100 stories, 100 small stories, and they started to blend together and got, got a little bit confusing. so. Wow. I started building around the quotations, pulling out stories, then the book started getting really long, really quickly, and it started to become a Quentin Tarantino movie. And I said, well, <laughs> people won't be able to follow it. So then I had to <laughs> sit down and reorganize it and start shining it and taking out a duplication of stories. But this particular writing project was a lot different than anything I'd ever done. And it was really, it was really difficult for me to change from a – from an academic voice, which I've been doing for, you know, 28 years to a creative voice again. And in doing so um, I started to feel a lot more uh, in touch with my, my emotional self, my core emotional self. And it was interesting. I was sitting there one day and I had written, I don't know what story it was. I think it was the one on when we went, we used to go to Woolworths and she was teaching me about civil rights and uh, eating cheeseburgers and things like that. And I um said if I could write her a letter here's what I would write and I wrote a letter to her and it dawned on me because the the title the original title of the uh, book was much different it was um it was something like escaping from the temple of pain right oh, really? um you know something like that so it was a completely different thing and when I wrote the letter I said dear mama and as I went through it it dawned on me that the idea of writing Dear Mama was a lot softer. Um, it was a lot more endearing, but behind it was such a powerful story. So oh. I changed it to Dear Mama, and I, I put it on Facebook. I said, "What do you think of this title?" Instead, uh, it used to be called Wisdom from the Temple of Pain. That's what it was originally, hmm. and people were like, "Dear Mama." That's and then I came up with the, uh, the the subtitle because I had to get I had to express what some of the um, underlying themes were, like race. There was so much on religion, and I didn't realize it at the time until I wrote this book, that religion was an undertone. And then there's so much, so much violence and sexual abuse and you know, issues of uh, obstacles to overcome that the byline came, you know, race, grace, and the wisdom to overcome. And the wisdom part were the quotations. So I was trying to tie it all together with the title so that people could see. And, that, and that's where I found the, um, the cover her holding me on her lap, I said, "Okay, there it is. There's the cover. There's the title, but no one will have an idea of how deep it goes into the the emotional and uh, the emotional components and all those scars and that that part of the writing. Uh, I I usually uh, wrote for about an hour a day, mm-hmm. and I got to a point where when Daddy Green dies, that I didn't realize until I wrote this book that I had never grieved over his death. And he and I were actually as close, if not closer, than I was with Mama Green. And it was the first time since 1974 that I'd actually cried about his passing. Wow. And then I started having these, <laughs> these uh, once that happened, because I have been a traditional male and been taught to not cry. Right. And next thing you know, I'm crying every day. <laughs> and I would write a story. And then finally I got to a point where, Um, you know, the the thing that when I got to the sexual abuse stuff, I had to put it down for a couple weeks. I just needed to stand away and when I came back, I pounded out the rest of it. It it took me a total of maybe I don't know, two months to write the whole thing and then editing took two or three months total and that, that was about it. That was the writing process.
1: Well, it I have to, I said earlier that you're very brave to speak, and I read, I got to the part of the book where it's, you, you, you speak of now, which was the abuse. And what you've done with this work, it's made it, it's kind of therapeutic for you. And if, if yeah. you can, as you continue to do your work with this and promoting it, I can see you doing community therapy with it as it relates to the messages of the And it's funny when you sit to think about the title. Your original title yeah. was good, but this one's even more effective to the point that I could actually see your story on uh, the title. Of course, it would probably be a watered-down plot because it would be on this channel. But I could see shows like the channels channel <laughs> such Hallmark taking it up because it has such a mm. heartfelt meaning and, and understanding and wholeness to the family unit and also some of the other subliminal messages that society sends as it pertains to that. And so I'm just so proud of you yeah. for coming forward to do that because that takes guts, man. It takes serious, serious guts <laughs> to, to come to your truth. It did. And as men, we don't grieve and we do internalize things more. And so it's nice to hear yeah. from another, another fellow colleague of mine who fully understands. And if you're going to write it, you've got to evoke all these emotions. Some of them are good and not so good. So I salute you for that. And I I um one of the things Please
0: go ahead. Oh, one of the things I did uh, as I was remembering stories is uh, all of her descendants have pretty much perished except for a few. And what I did was is as I was telling stories. Um I had the people who were actually in the story because they're all real names oh. except well, I changed the names of the people who committed felonious crimes. Oh. right? I changed those oh. names. But uh, all the other names were real, and what I was doing is I was sending those sections out to those people and asking them to read those sections to see if um, they were accurate as I remembered them, how they right. remembered them, and all the stories were accurate as they remembered them. And her eldest niece, um, Ardelia Ardelia mm-hmm. Freeman, she actually walked through the first section, uh, all the stuff from Blyville, and she and I had a lot of conversations about my memory because – I'm the only one left. I'm the only one in that family that has any memories of Mama Green, and what she was, what she did was, is she verified all the stories because her mother, obviously, was Mama Green's sister, um, and she didn't share those stories. But she, when she was getting Alzheimer's, she started sharing the same stories with Ardelia's daughter. So she and I are the only two that have any knowledge of what happened in their personal background. So Ardelia was able to. Um, basically confirm that all my recollections were correct, and then I had all my friends who were in different sections read those sections to make sure that my recollections were absolutely correct. And my memory is very good. I mean, it, it's always very good, but um, I just wanted to make sure I didn't want to put things out of place. Um, right. And like the the scene where there was there was an attempted homicide in in, in the book right in front of my eyes, and
1: the person oh,
0: wow. who who um, Prevented The homicide from taking place I sent it to him and his response was it was exactly as he remembered it when he was saving that person's life and then um, my best friend uh, you may have heard the name Booney in the book yes. Booney and I he, he had it's his story but he had a similar type of abusive background so we shared everything so as I was coming through manuscripts, I would send it to him and he was a Marine and it ended up, he, um, he cried constantly all the way through, um, reading it. So for him, it it released a lot of emotions for me, it released emotions. And he and I have actually, we've always been close. We've been best friends since we were six, but we've got a new bond based upon the tribulations that we've gone through. Yeah. And we're actually talking about writing a, uh, a sequel, um, called Shadow Man on first, he was a he was a great baseball pitcher, and he actually made it to the major leagues and played right. one day for the Padres and tore his rotator cuff, and his career ended on the first day. Wow. But we used to have <laughs> – he was abused. I had issues with violence and abuse. And then one of our best friends, his father was the president of the Iron Coffins Motorcycle Gang, mm-hmm. and they were in war with the Hells Angels. And then we had another guy who um, was abused and – kind of crazy stuff. And I'm not trying to uh, use their names, but what we would do is the eight of us, eight of us would get together and we'd go to this abandoned field and we'd play baseball. Um, So we'd leave our abuse at home and we'd come play baseball, bond as brothers, and then we'd go back to these crazy places. And then, so we're going to capture that story from each of our perspectives as well as the trajectories that our life took afterwards um, one of the guys ended up in prison, one became a Marine, I became a professor, and the two, two other guys became, you know, um, blue-collar employees. So we're looking at how, uh, you know, craziness um, brought us together. Baseball gave us a place to disappear to, and then how, how all those things had direct outcomes on our uh, quality of life. So, you know, that's a new project, and I'm doing one called Semicolon, which is about, um, you know, kids who go through childhood trauma. Um, There's ten factors that they define. I had seven of the ten. Four, I think it's it's 12% of the population has four or fewer. And I had seven, which means I'm about seven-tenths of a percent of the population. And persons who go through multiple forms of trauma, have higher rates of drug addiction, higher rates of suicide ideation, higher rates of suicide, all those kind of negative outcomes. So what I'm doing is I'm going to cover in the third sequel, uh, I'm, I'm going to uncover those impacts and how it's had an impact on me being kind of fatalistic about life, um, a high-risk taker, um, a person who is really not afraid of death and being in dangerous situations. And I'm putting it in that semicolon movement about persons who are able to overcome those notions of suicide and self-harm and how do they stand up and keep walking. So I'm I'm going back to the Dear Mama part. I'm going to tie it to Dear Mama in the messages, talk about stories of how those messages uh, prevented me from going down the wrong path in different points of time and how I've been able to use hope overcome myself if that makes any sense so the the book triggered um, all kinds of um, emotional response and um, the response from readers has been oh really you can't even imagine what the response has been Um, some people have had to put it down because they can't walk through it all some people have said thank God you wrote this because I I needed this for my own you know salvation so to speak and other people are like, you know, I laughed, I cried, and most of all I felt inspired that if you came through this, then I can do it too. And exactly. my best friend actually who, my best friend called me. His uh not not to get political, but his sister was just offered the um Secretary of Education job by Trump, but she turned it down, uh Michelle mm-hmm. Rhee. And yeah. uh her brother called me and Eric and he he profusely apologized to me. He said, I didn't know. Um, I, I should have done more. My family should have done more. And I said, Eric, you saved my life. I said, yeah. in high school, if it hadn't been for you and your family, I I wouldn't be here now. So, wow. you know, all those kind of relationships just came back out um, to the surface. Um, a lot of people experienced a lot of pain. Booney, for example, was going to write his own book. Uh, <laughs> And he he said he couldn't get through the first page because it broke him down. And there was so much, so much sexual abuse in my neighborhood. And the friends who had been sexually abused, um, we we were talking through the issues as I was writing. And they all wanted to do their own version. And and all of them stopped. They they said, I can't even, I started writing the first sentence and I had to stop. I, I couldn't do it. And all of them uniformly said, you know, we're so proud of what you've done. Because it took a lot of strength. And, I, you know, the way I'm looking at it is, you know, I just had to tell the story. Because yeah. I feel like I have a different purpose in life than I have in the last 20 years. And mm-hmm. I'm just trying to open up those doors and walk forward and let things
1: unfold as they're supposed to unfold. Hmm. You, know, you just How's figured- that for a long answer? No, <laughs> oh, that was a great answer. And I have lots of questions for you. And we're going to try to get through all of sure. them who are listening now, you're listening to the amazing Sean Schwanner, who is the author of Dear Mama, Lessons on Race, Grace, and the Wisdom to Overcome. If you'd like to speak to him during the live broadcast, call me now at 347-539-5372. Again, that is 347-539-5372. And I can see that you're not shy, folks. You're sending me tons of emails, and I'm going to do my best to get those questions to Sean directly. But the email address again. Is everyday folks listen at gmail.com. Again, that is everyday folks listen at gmail.com. Sean, here's our first question. It's from John from Memphis, Tennessee. He writes the following. Hi, John. Sean, after growing up with mama, how did your relationship improve with your biological mama, if at all?
0: Um, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um my my mother and Mama Green, uh, my mother was like a daughter to Mama Green, and she absolutely adored my mother, and worked with my mother extensively to have her come into contact with her own emotional feelings because she my mother was tortured as a child tortured,
1: you know I, I, saw I remember that.
0: watching I Mommy Dearest, yeah, it was horrific horrific what happened to her and. Actually, I'm thinking about writing a book called Mama or Hero about my mother. But in any case, um, my mom really struggled with having um, attachment to me. She loved me, but she couldn't emotionally attach to me. And Mama Green really was there attaching to her, giving her the, um, the, the role modeling to attach to me. And we grew closer. My mom was always there. She she went to my sporting events, you know, school events and things like that. But um, it was around 12 years old or so. We started becoming pretty close. But then when she got with my stepfather, my future stepfather, everything just crumbled. And there's a scene in there where, you know, uh, a very violent episode took place. And we grew apart Um I stayed home, but things became very crazy for the next several years. And... When I was graduating from Denison, um, we had to actually utilize the sayings and the quotations and the guidance that Mama Green had given us all those years to actually rebuild our relationship. So over the next, literally over the next 20, 25 years, my mother and I, we were close, but there was always this gap because of the violent episode that took place in 1981 um, but we we both fell back on the beauty of Bertha, and we used that beauty of Bertha as a communication mechanism to to build a relationship ourselves so that when my mother finally died in 2014, Mm -hmm. um, in January 2014, Mm -hmm. I was blessed to have been able to be there because of the nature of my job at uh, Miami Dade College, and we spent two weeks as a mother and a son Without all the other pretenses, and it was right. the most beautiful two weeks. And most of our conversation, when she was able to speak, was built around our memory of Bertha Lee Green, mm-hmm. and it was um, it was the relationship that allowed us to have a relationship. So, wow. um, for um, our caller from our writer from Memphis, um, Mama Green gave me the opportunity to actually have a relationship with my mother uh, and vice versa. It was a very interesting dynamic, very interesting dynamic.
1: By the way, I'm
0: trying to, oh, please, please. No, no, I'll listen to the question. Oh, I said, by the way, we're trying to um, in Memphis, uh, I'm working with the city government. We're trying to develop a homicide reduction program Based upon the philosophies
1: of Mama Green, just for oh, FYI. Really cool. Wow. And John, if you're listening, still listening, please do you know email me, please, and I can connect you to Sean directly because I think you would be a great support and perhaps be a further connection. There are a couple more questions. You're generating more, Sean. Here they go. This is from Donna <laughs> from Hollywood, Florida. Donna, thanks for listening to Everyday Folks. She writes the following. Were you always passionate about writing as a child?
0: You know, I was. um, When I was really, really little, Uh, (laughs) Mama Green had a a little notepad that was yellowed on all the edges, and I spent every day writing a little story. And when I went home with my mom, I had a little spiral-bound notebook, and I was always writing little stories. Um, I loved it, and I always wanted to be a writer. However... When I got to high school, I had an English teacher that I had my freshman, sophomore, junior year, and he absolutely abhorred my writing. And I got a C minus, a C minus for the year, and then a D plus. And at that point, I was like, I'm a horrible writer. I'm never going to write again. And Mm -hmm. my confidence was absolutely shattered. And I chose that I would do anything that I had to do to prevent myself from writing, um, And it wasn't until I got to Denison that I I never got over, actually I never got over that uh, issue of confidence. I still don't have the confidence in my writing from my relationship with that particular English teacher. Um, But I I went through a process with uh, one of the professors at Denison who broke me down, got me back to basics, and then built me back up over a five-semester period where I had some confidence. And then when I went to graduate school, I had a pioneer in criminology break me down again, build me back up, and another professor taught me how to outline. So when I left graduate school, I had, I had the confidence to write academically and uh, write very well academically, but that creative side had long disappeared. So, yes, the answer is yes. I, I started writing stories way back when I first learned how to write, um, and I did it all the time. Then I, my confidence got shattered by a teacher, and then I had other teachers Repair me, and finally, um, I started putting my own voice together. And I'm I'm still learning my voice, my creative voice. Mm-hmm. But as I learn it and become more passionate about it, I become much more flexible in my ability to write from various voices. And that's been that it, it ends up. It was it's been a blessing. It's been a blessing. And that, so is, and that is
1: very important to do as a writer. People don't realize, Sean, that we writers are very special. And when we're watching or observing individuals, we'll find the most, the slightest little window of an individual so significant to our writing experience. And so it could be perhaps Absolutely. out into the distance when they're thinking or how they bite their lower lip when they're nervous. Or to that nature that we seem to take in and absorb because it magnifies the moment of truth and it provides the believability that our readers want. And this next question... Yes. It comes, this is a big one. So here, listen carefully on this one. This, it comes okay. from, from New York City, New York. Here goes. As a first time writer, you inspire me, Sean, to pursue my own dream of publishing. But I'm still hesitant. You see, I'm adopted. It wasn't until a few years ago that I met my biological mother. My adopted parents are great people, but they insist that I avoid tracking her down for unknown reasons until recently. Now I know and can understand why I shouldn't write the story from their view. What are your thoughts? Should I publish and risk hurting the people who raised me and whom I love dearly? Hmm.
0: You know, that's a that's a great question, and um, it's a tough one to answer. Um, it is really for me when I wrote this particular one. I use myself as an example. Um, I knew I had a broader purpose in life that I wanted to pursue. And writing this book actually fit in. However, um, I did not want to write the book while my mother was living because, you know, there there are some components of the book where she doesn't look like a, a great woman. She was a great woman, but she was emotionally, you know, growing. We'll put it that way. And I didn't want her to be hurt by the book. Um, but I also had to tell the real story. And right. You know, we had a conversation in 2012, and I said, "Mom, you know, I'm going to write this book about Mama Green," and I said, "Um, "I'm going to bring up things that happened between you and I," and I said, "I I don't want—I'm not doing it to slander you, um, but it is something that you know we had things happen, and I'm going to tell those stories, Um, but I'm also going to make it known that you and I became mother son later." So I had—I had a conversation with my mother. Um, I waited until she passed um, pretty pretty deliberately um, because I didn't want her to be hurt by it. Um, right. But on the other hand, it was something that I needed to write. Um, I wish what I wanted to do was interview her to write a book about her as well so I'd have had three different things in the works. For the doctor in New York, I think I think the real important question, I would write it, doesn't mean you have to publish it. Um, right. But what I would do... Is if I'm if I were going to publish it, I would want to see does it does does it play a purposeful role in my life? I mean, does it take me to a better place? Does it take us in general to a better place? And if um, and if you do publish it, I would have that conversation. I'd have the conversation with your um you know your adoptive parents, your parent, and you know your biological parents. And I think that. I think stories need to be told, even if it's for ourselves down the road. You know, if it fits into something you're trying to accomplish, like helping other persons who have walked on your, through your path, then it's certainly worth um, publishing that book because one of the things I learned from my mom, uh, from my, well, my mom and mama green was, and I I carry this with me, Billy, especially Mm -hmm. in the classroom,
1: Mm -hmm. that
0: right now someone's being born somewhere right now. And, I'm going to come across them in about 20 years and they're going to extend their hand to me. And I'm either going to be prepared to extend my hand and help them and hold them up like people have done for me, or I'm going to keep on walking. And they may not even tell me that they need me. And I think that one of the things I learned from writing mine is that I've been able to help people that I didn't know needed help. And had I not done it, I'd have been able to inspire in the classroom. But this is a different type of thing, and I think the doctor out of New York may actually be helping others that are walking down a similar path that she may not otherwise be able to extend her hand to. And I always believe, Mama Green always taught me, this is one of her sayings, never let another person leave your home hungry. And she Mm. wasn't talking about food. What Mm -hmm. she was saying is, is that if someone comes to you hungry, it is your job and your obligation to extend your hand and hoist them up and carry them. And I think that given the nature of what doctors talking about, for example, my stepbrother and stepsister were both adopted and, um, you know, they wanted to find their parents. So they're going through like this similar, my my stepbrother did find his mother. My uh, stepsister hasn't yet. Um, But in any case, um, it would have been very helpful for them to have had that story to uh, look to. So I think, I think it's worth writing for sure. If you publish it, I would definitely have the conversation. But I think it's worth putting down on paper. But I'd have the conversation with the people who are involved. And if anything, you can always change some names. and yeah. You can always use a you know uh, a, a different name as an author. I mean, it doesn't have to be you. Um, you know, so you could make up names, do different
1: types of things to get the same story out there. You know, I would write it. Oh, I agree with you, and I, I did everything that Sean said, and I'll add this. Sean mentioned one thing that is so significant, and that is, if you know the purpose of why you're writing, then who is the purpose audience? What is the intentionality of this incredible work? I think it should be out there. There are over twenty thousand books that are released every month, and these these things these these vessels represent ideas. And I feel that great ideas and human expression should be shared with the world. I encourage Sean. I think Sydney, you should go for yeah. it. Go for it and, and see what. And, and if this is what you want. Be ready for the, for the unexpected um, circumstances, the good, the bad, and I'm not so sad about it. But be brave as well, because if you, if you yeah. feel this is your calling to do, then why not pursue it? I think it's very important. Absolutely. Sean, you have, you have a few more questions here that are coming in. And we're going to try to squeeze them in, in the last 20 minutes. Sandra from Miami, Florida, right. ask the following. Sean, have you ever been a person to write for someone else? Like a ghost, like as a ghostwriter, I was recently approached. <laughs> and have been considering it. What are your thoughts? And the highs and lows of this. Well,
0: you know, um, I, I've been approached to uh, be a ghostwriter, and yes, I, I strongly support it. You know, there. Are, uh, the way I look at it is, one of the components of the a business that I'm getting ready to start is, is that there's there's so many great stories out there that aren't told because. Uh, people have this issue with putting themselves out there one or they can't quite formulate uh ex- pre- patterns of expression so they can't write it and um I've been, I've been approached by the mother of a celebrity a major celebrity from Miami and I've been approached by one of the highest paid the brother of the highest paid NFL player to write their story and mm-hmm. neither one of them would write their own story but I can be a conduit to get their story out there because their stories are incredible. The the tricky part of ghostwriting is to write in someone else's voice. Right. However, you know, if you interview them on tape or what have you, or uh, one of the things I do is I sit down and I ask them, you know, what's the core of your story? And then we get to a certain particular chapter and I just have them walk me through it and talk me through that particular chapter. And then, the ideas of it. And then I just start typing for a couple hours and then I'll ask the questions of emotion. How'd you feel when that happened? Uh, you know, what did the trees look like when you passed them? What was the road like when you were speeding down the highway or what have you? And what I can do is I can capture those elements for them and expand, you know, for, for you and I, I mean, it's not very hard for me to sit down and pound out 30 to 50 pages in mm-hmm. you know, five or six hours, but for other people, uh, you know, a page or a paragraph might be intimidating. So I allow those persons to tell their story, and I start typing away, and then I let them proof it and put in their words that uh, would fit their voice better. And next thing you know, they have a have a story, and these two stories are going to be incredible when they come out. Uh, <laughs> I can't even begin to tell you these how incredible these two other uh, stories are. But, yeah, ghostwriting, fantastic. I, I hope to be able to do that for persons who either aren't brave or haven't come to that, uh, that ability internally to do it themselves, but they want to do it. And, I, I you know, I can write it for them. That's, that's
1: not a problem. And I, I love doing that for people, as a matter of fact. Hmm. It's funny you say that, your notion of ghostwriting. Recently, I don't know if I shared this with you, Sean, but I've been announcing throughout the year that after Everyday Folks Volume 2 comes out next year, Late 2018, if not early 2019, I'll be releasing my poetry book, and its it, mm. the title is still being debated. But it is a histor- its a book about the poetry book about the various historic sites of South Florida. And mm. I've been visiting these incredible places, and as you and as I visit places like the Deering Estate, the Stranahan House in Fort Lauderdale, the the the, the, the Coral Castle down in Homestead been to these great places, they are incredible, story, incredible stories. Knowing the whole lineage and the history of Henry Flagler, why we have a Flagler Street in Miami, many of my students don't mm-hmm. know that things have significance. But what I'm doing through the poetry mm-hmm. is through the prose, the li- these incredible stories, the lives and emotions of the people who once inhabited these locations. And I don't know these people, and yet I know of them through the artifacts that I'm digging through, the interviews of historians that I'm speaking to, and if I'm fortunate, a family member who's willing to chat with me. And mm-hmm. what you said is very true, and that is, you have to sit here and sift through all this incredible stuff, the data. And you have to bring mm-hmm. some kind of opinion, if not truth, to it. And that in itself is so exciting, because for once, you're, you're giving a, a bird's eye view to peer in, or if not, you know, look down in, to someone else's incredible story a lot out of you because you have to be able to, to capture it right because we still have to, commit yeah. to the process of plot and commit to the process of realism and capturing things that they really are. It's very hard, but it's also very enjoyable, hence why we choose to do this kind of work, right? So I, I'm with Yeah, exactly. Sandra, you, I think what Sean said, you nailed it well, and that is you have to do what's best for you, and if you have the option and the opportunity to help get, bring other people is to life through prose, go for it. Here's a question no, here's, here's a question that is simple yet challenging. So here goes. From, <laughs> <laughs> as I read it, I'm thinking, whoa, this, even I had to pause for a minute. It's from Christine from Orlando, Florida. Sean, is there any part of this book that you regret writing? Yes. <laughs>
0: yes, there there is a part that... Um, yeah, there, there, well, there's a couple parts. Um, I don't regret writing any of it, but there's one particular scene. I, I'm not sure if it really adds in uh, what I want it to, but there, there's, a, there's a there's a scene where I get molested in a swimming pool by a grown woman when I was 12 years old, yeah. and it was, uh, it was a very short scene. Yeah, I mean, the, the chapter is only two or three pages long, but I, I grappled back and forth with whether or not it was worth telling because, um, you know, <laughs> I had been sexually assaulted about four months earlier by my mother's boyfriend, mm-hmm. and it was a you know it was just a, appalling it was an appalling experience and mm-hmm. it was humiliating. Uh, no one believed me, and it was actually the story that closed my emotions down where. I put on the mask and would not let anybody into my temple any longer, my temple of pain, which is what I talk about in there. Yeah, and yeah. then and it, it was it was brutal and it was abusive and all those kind of things. And then four months later this woman, grown woman, beautiful woman, then she molested me in a swimming pool. And it was like a warm type of you know, engaged feeling. And I and, and the confusion was how do I feel so, so much angst from what the boyfriend did, but then so touched by what this woman did. And from that point on, I was like, you know, should I even have this in there? And then right. it came back and I asked a few people who, who read through certain sections. I said, do you think that this adds to the story? And they're like, it's a crucial part of the story. So I kept it in there. Um, and, and, you know, there's one part, that is real tough for me is that um my kids don't know me very well uh my my ex-spouse she she comes from a different type of social class background than myself and my she knows some of my stories and she's just like she thinks my life is somewhat bizarre and and, it, and you know and all honestly it really is so my kids don't know a whole lot about growing up poor being around the gangs and the drugs and the guns and um mama green they didn't even know her name until i wrote the book and i wrote it so if i were to die remember i have a fatalistic attitude about certain things mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i said if i die they might miss out on a great story so i wrote it and i said girls i'm writing this story for you um you can't read it until you're 25 because it's very <laughs> it's very adult in language i said but if you ever want to know your dad and where he came from, and the real value of him being a professor, then this is a gift for you. And when I think about that particular chapter, something just strikes me as strange as whether or not I want them to read that part. Mm. Um, But since it's real and since it did happen, uh, I kept it in there because it was a source of so much confusion for me that still, I'm still confused um, from that four-month period when I was 12 years old. Um so yeah it's not a regret that I wrote it, but it is certainly something that I've grappled with whether i'm gonna whether I wanted to have it in there at all and there are there are stories that I did not put in there i right. mean there there you know I told a lot of stories in that book, and there are a lot of stories that I didn't tell um but i don't I don't regret any of it, but i did have i had some really some very painful emotional responses. To a lot of the stuff that I did write, um, you know, pock face that whole section on pock face and what, what happened over there at that blue factory, <laughs> I, I just, you know, it conjured up. Really, I mean, it's the type of story where had serendipity not taken place and an ice cream truck didn't come down that street, I think, and, and to this day, I still think I would have been uh, found dead. I would have been murdered by those three guys. I'm I'm positive of it. So I think in terms of, you know, how blessed I am to be here because of Mama mm-hmm. Green, but in a random ice cream truck coming down the street. And going back to your very first question, the fact that I think that I can reach people and touch people and do professional speaking and develop programs at the city level for places like Memphis and Louisville and Miami, I think it all ties back to I've been spared for a purpose. Right. And that's one of the motivating factors for me because those guys were not going to be nice to me. Um,
1: well, sure. Yeah,
0: Serendipity.
1: Yeah, sure. you, to This you are such an incredible speaker, and even normally during <laughs> interviews, I, I cut in and I, I chime in. But I'm sitting, I feel like I'm sitting at a campfire, and I'm <laughs> listening to your voice. You're like this empowering grill who is sitting here and providing this story, and it's coming at me in such a remarkable way. As you speak, I feel like I'm going to this other place, this other time. I could visualize, even as I was reading your work, I could visualize these instances. And the way. you didn't gloss it over. You did very well in your descriptors of it, but you didn't overdo it. Because you gave us just enough dose where it was good for a taste, but not for the swallow, especially for the, bo- the bad parts, that is. But then, and it's funny, mm-hmm. you mentioned this part because I got to that part where, where the molestation took place in the pool. I thought it was highly appropriate for the book because mm. you present the dichotomy of the notion of sexual power as it pertains to the roles. And I thought that was very yeah. compelling to present and to see that someone, the people don't, and you know this well in your field. Cesar Lombroso, the, the famous um, criminologist from, what, three or four centuries ago, when he wrote the book, The Criminal Woman, the Normal Woman, and a Prostitute, he interviewed all these fascinating mm-hmm. people of his time, and he looked at their characteristics in, their case, in his case study, some of which have become mm-hmm. some of the foundations of the work that you teach. And he, people don't realize mm-hmm. that women can also be a threat, and it doesn't mean that we yeah. can't love our female counterparts. Kind of hey, they brought us here but also, too, that there's still the idea that criminals are predominantly men and that problems when it mm-hmm. comes to sexual abuse and intention, and, and, and it seems to emanate from a male source. And so it was very nice that you brought out this other stark, this contrast from that view, which I thought it was so mm. important. For the and it was so just gripping. I said, oh my gosh. And then as you're reading, I just went back at 12 and thought, wait a minute, what happened when I was 12? What is so compelling that, that how can I take from this? And what about my own nephew who will soon be 12? What will he say of his life when he's of age? So you make people go to their place. And that's very, very, that's that's unlike many writers to do that. It's very difficult to achieve naturally. And the way that you're able to do it so beautifully and faithfully, it says that you have, you have talent. You have true, true talent, uh-huh. raw talent, true uh-huh. talent. And so here comes the next uh-huh. question. We're gonna to try to squeeze in one more. And, okay. this is, and it comes from Thomas from Atlanta, Georgia. Deep down inside, I have this need to write my story. Recently, I was told I was born to an interracial couple. It explains my unique features and traits. However, I was brought up Jewish in New York. Who would be interested mm. in reading my work? Is it even worth writing? <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, I I just I heard the description and I can tell you you need to write that today. <laughs> that 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 uh there there's I mean there's mix between uh race there and you know religion New York Atlanta oh my gosh yeah there there's uh, without hesitation uh, I don't know you know the key stories or the, you know, individual stories, but I can only imagine, you know, some of the cognitive dissonance and, you know, the the internal conflicts that he experienced along the way. I think that needs to be uh, immediately start doing your outlines, start uh, labeling your stories or whatever your writing process is and get that story down, no doubt. And as a matter of fact, just a plug for one of my uh, former basketball players from University of Louisville. Luke Whitehead. He has a company up in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. It's called Mixed Nation. If you mm-hmm. type in Mixed Nation mm-hmm. from, um, uh, on uh, Facebook, you'll mm-hmm. see his company, and it, it's all about um, uh, interracial children and the beauty of interracial um, relationships, and I think you'd find it uh, remarkable. Um, and he has a T-shirt. It's called Erasism, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful company beautiful company
1: just in case you Definitely want to connect with somebody who's going through that process and that was great advice Pardon? for thomas thomas please check out these wonderful resources i'm also writing them down as well and do my best to link them on my page as well sean thank you so much for that oh sure sean and we're sure. Coming down to I, last i'd suggest anyone write yes we're coming down to last seven minutes but i do want to get in a couple of questions that are also very rich so hopefully you can provide a brief response to each One question comes from Ray from Hollandale Beach, Florida. What did you learn about African-American culture after being raised with with mama? Wow. Um,
0: I learned that uh, issues of race are both magnificently complex, but they're also wonderfully simple. And, you know, what what I learned most of all from her was, and this is one of the most beautiful stories, is that – What's most important is do people love you? Do they respect you? It's irrelevant to the nature of their skin as to whether or not they treat you as a decent human being. And she always pounded the message on me that um, people are more similar than they are different, but we mm-hmm. use that difference to create boundaries to hate others. But the other part of it is, is that Mama Green had, <laughs> in some ways she was very racist um, she, she did not like persons who were of Mexican descent at all. Yeah. Um, and I found out during the research for the book why that was, is because Mexicans were in direct um, competition in those plantations in Arkansas when she grew up for jobs. And, you know, more Mexicans were lynched uh, than anyone knows about in history, as well as African Americans. So right. she was taught as a child that those persons she was competing with were actually diseased. So she had this profound dislike for persons who were Hispanic. And I worked with her on that. See, she taught me how to love people for what they are. And I worked with her on how to accept persons who are Hispanic for who they were. And she ended up becoming really good friends with Mr. Tello, but she was so brutally abused by her stepfather that she used all that nasty racist language so that she could deface him so that she could spare her own dignity. Right. And it, it was such a complex use of language and um, uh, self-protection that I realized that issues of race were very complex, but in terms of respecting and loving one another is very simple. And her quote, I, I love her quote. She said, uh, never hate. That was her one big uh, mantra. And the other one was um, never judge another person unless you've walked in their shoes and you have never walked in another person's shoes. Mm. Mm. Wow. So, when it came to race, I was really uh obviously you see you see, right? But the 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 social construction of race has never had an impact on me. Never. Race. And that is something that I can truly say out loud is that you know, everyone to me is a brother or sister, everyone. Mm. And uh that that is the greatest gift that she gave me. Is that Thank you, Sean. Hours.
1: Wow. This is sure. so powerful. Sean, I hope you'll create an audio book. <laughs> you need to do an audio book <laughs> of this. That's a whole other conversation. This is this is all budding into something so wonderful. You just have such insights, not only for as a writer, but also as a speaker. So it explains. This okay. explains again and again who you are and why you are just who you are. It's just it's really great. And so here's my last question and I want you to make it brief if you can. Sure. And that is this. It's okay. actually a question from Gamixia. Um In one sentence, the reason why people should read your book. Because it will inspire you to find your greatness. Hmm. Well said.
0: Well That's said. Simple. Where can you find <laughs>
1: it, Sean?
0: You can find it on Amazon or Createspace.com, or you can find it at um, you can find it on Kindle.
1: That's where so, I actually got it. And know. also.
0: Kindle. I, I'm also available for professional speaking Any, if, if an agency or a group wants me to come out and speak um, on YouTube, Sean Schwander. there's a couple examples of me actually speaking in front of an audience of 200 250 people uh, and, and that's where I thrive, that's, that's my lifelong passion is to be a motivational speaker to take these stories and to share them with others so that other people, because I believe Mama Green taught me this, that everybody has greatness inside them but sometimes it's a matter of finding it and then trusting it. So uh, when she taught me, um, you have a million-dollar personality, never let anyone take that from you. That's what I believe about everybody, and that came from her. So I am <laughs> I am, the philosopher of a third-grade dropout. Mm. That's exactly what I am. Wow.
1: Wow, son. Well, Sean, I want to thank you <laughs> so much for coming on the show and inspiring me just to be a better, not only a better writer, but just be, be a better person and to appreciate who I am, where I'm at in this world. And for those of you who've been listening, Sean Schwanner is just not, he's, he's on the rise here, folks. you got to check out his book. It's titled <laughs> Dear Mama, Lessons on Race, Grace, and the Wisdom to Overcome. I'll be providing links to his work, my author page at billypauljones.com, and as well, if you'd like to listen to this show again, which then will be archived in Apple Tunes Store, you may do so there, or you can click on, from my, on my webpage as well, where it will take you to the Blog Talk Radio archive, where you can listen to additional shows. Thank you so much for being here, Sean. And thank you, folks, for listening. These questions that you've asked have been so golden. I'll do my best to try to, to channel those to Sean. You can communicate with me and I'll connect you to him. This is Billy. Doug. Thank you, Billy. Thanks for listening to Everyday Folks. Thank you, Sean, for being so great. And tune in next week and the remainder of the week for all of our remaining shows. Take care.